Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all starts with identity. Every NBA career is rooted in it. Whether conscious or not, draft prospects spend years projecting a particular image. One is a poised, confident floor general. Another might be a skilled face-up threat. They're tenacious on-ball defenders and these raw athletic wings. There's a bucket for every kind. We reduce players to these common denominators as a way of trying to understand the chaos of the game. When there are too many variables to really make sense of it all, you can start by making everything uncomplicated. The catch is that the league itself never sits still. So whatever a player's identity is, it's relative to their team, to the evolution of the NBA, and maybe most of all, to the arc of their career. Some of the greatest to ever play came and went playing more or less the same style. Think John Stockton or Kobe Bryant. For everyone else, sticking around requires frequent redefinition. Jason Kidd and Vince Carter had to rework their games multiple times. It's not just shifting from one thing to the other. It was all different stages. Uh, That's kind of how I look at it. That's the voice of a seven-time All-Star who has played all over the spectrum. Fast and slow, post and perimeter, centerpiece and supplement. This is Joe Johnson from the Utah Jazz, 16-year veteran, still going strong. The player Johnson is now was made gradually. He's played for six teams, each wanting something totally different. Johnson found the space in his game to accommodate all of those requests, building layer upon layer of basketball utility. I didn't have everything that that's that I would say I got in my game now than when I was a young player. Like, uh, I wasn't a great pick-and-roll guy. I wasn't a great post-up guy. You know, I had to develop all those things. And uh, early on in my career, like I said, I was just happy to be out there playing. I wasn't really concerned about being the best pick-and-roll guy, being the best one-on-one guy, or being the best post guy. I wasn't even posting early in my career. So, you know, as the years kind of went along, obviously as you get a little older, man, you start to realize you lose a step. So you have to add different things in your game. Like he said, it came in stages. And at every stage, Johnson 
came out transformed. I'm Rob Mahoney, and you're listening to Breakaway. Having seen the full breadth of Johnson's career, you almost forget that he came into the league thin and quick and, like most rookies, a little bit rudderless. But scouts and peers saw the same promise. When Johnson's game clicked, he was smooth and productive. When it didn't, he could fall through the cracks of a game as a non-factor. Landing on the right side of that scale was Johnson's first priority after being drafted by the Celtics. Boston had three first-round picks in 2001. Johnson at 10, Kedrick Brown at 11, and Joe Forte at 21. And not only were they teammates, they were neighbors. The three rookies all lived in the same apartment complex, so they'd get together to play video games, stay up all night, and relive their college years. We became super tight, and uh, man, I just remember... Jim O'Brien at the time was, uh, he had just got the head coaching job with the Boston Celtics. And he came to us three one day. And he was like, man, you know, uh, two of you guys going to have to sit on IR. You know, uh, you're going to have to take turns. I'm thinking to myself, shh. Man, I'm, if I had to destroy these guys every night, man, I'm coming out to destroy them because I, I want to play. O'Brien apparently saw enough. Johnson got time right off the bat, and even more when Eric Williams, who was the starter on the wing, went down with injury. Playing with Paul Pierce, Antoine Walker, Kenny Anderson, you know, I, I got some guys on my team who were getting them up. But, uh, man, I was very efficient, but I never even looked at it from that standpoint. I was just happy to be out there playing, man. I, I'm living out my dream, uh, and I was just trying to make the most of it. The way to make the most of it was to defend. Johnson took on the thankless work of hounding the best opposing wing for most of the game, a responsibility he would then cede to Pierce in crunch time. That kept Pierce fresh to create offense and maximize Johnson's effort level. He was a specialist, a 6'7 guard who could keep his man square at a time when the wing depth in the NBA was just murderous. This one, this one, Michael Jordan came back play with the Wizards. I'm guarding Michael Jordan, like, fourth game of the season. I'm starting guarding him. Uh, playing against T Mac, Vince Carter, Kobe Bryant, like that was that was huge for me. So these are guys who I idolized coming up, man, and uh, who've paved the way for me. And now I'm out here on the same floor with them. Uh, man, I was geeked. I was geeked. It's never ideal to throw a rookie into a fire quite that scorching, but the balance worked. Johnson filled in as a low usage, high energy stopper. Pierce went on to have an all-star season, and the Celtics were finally breaking through as the second-best team in the East. Then came the kicker. Once Boston was really in a position to make a push, they traded Johnson away for veteran help. The whole experience blindsided him. You know, I didn't. I had no clue I was getting traded. It was just we was on a road trip. We was in Dallas, about to play Dallas, and uh, came and Coach called me up to his room one morning. And he told me I've been traded, and that's when it, the, everything just kind of clicked. Like, man, I'm really going to a whole nother team. In my rookie season, I'm like, I don't want to be no journeyman. I, I just knew I had to go to another group of guys. I had to develop their trust. Uh, I had to learn a whole new team, a whole new system. And mid-season as a rookie, you that's, man, that's a lot, you know. But uh, it really opened my eyes up to the business side. And then I was thinking, like, man, 
wonder why Boston Traven was like not good enough. I mean, we was we was solid. It was like number two in the East. They hadn't even made the playoffs the previous three years. So I'm like, dang. I, like, I, I really didn't understand it until, like, man, honestly, it's about, like, my fifth or sixth year in the league. And, like, you know, as a young guy, when you develop that type of value to yourself and uh, they're making a deep playoff run or feel like they can make one, then you, you, you're a great asset to be traded. They don't exactly lead with that information at the rookie seminar. Cracking the rotation is a reasonable goal for a first-year player. Those that do and manage to play well tend to draw interest, the kind that could tempt a competitive team looking to accelerate its timeline. Boston gave in. By doing so, it gave Johnson a personal introduction to the business of basketball. You know, I wasn't mad or bitter about it, it's just kind of what it was. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On arrival, the Suns already had Johnson doing more than he ever had in Boston. There was a little more open air out there in the desert. Phoenix immediately moved Penny Hardaway to the bench and cleared a path for Johnson to handle the ball. These were the Stephon Marbury days. Before Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni, it was a time of convincing mediocrity. The stakes were low enough that Johnson, inconsistent as he was, could play a more operative role. His minutes jumped to over 31 a game over the back half of his rookie season, and with that came steady involvement. Over the summer, Phoenix drafted Amari Stoudemire, a talent so clear he recontextualized the team's entire plans almost immediately. Things were more incremental for Johnson. He'd get a bit more rope every season to run, pick, and roll or create for himself. Only some of it worked, but the trial was the point. You can't know what a 21-year-old can really accomplish until you let him go. A few months into Johnson's third full season in Phoenix, and the year before they'd signed Nash, the Suns bought into that idea wholesale. Before we got those guys, the season before we got those guys, we traded Penny and Steph. So that just opened up the door for me and Amari to kind of, you know, explore and just evolve into the players that we can become. Part of that exploration involved Johnson cranking up his shooting frequency while playing over 40 minutes a night. The pace of the team went with him. D'Antoni took over as interim head coach in the middle of that season, thrusting Phoenix into the run-and-gun era before it really had the pieces. Johnson started plugging holes. Fewer of his shots were assisted than ever because once Marbury was out of the picture, Johnson became the most reliable entry point for the offense. 
He led the team in assists while giving D'Antoni an alternative to this wild rookie starter named Leandro Barbosa. It goes without saying that Nash changed everything for the Suns, including the shape of what was needed from Johnson. The power in adding him came in how it shifted and complemented all the talent that was already in place. I looked at the lineup Phoenix had. I felt like I'd be a great fit and that we could develop into a contender. Sure enough, they did. And Johnson's role was split. When Nash was in the driver's seat, Johnson ran his lane straight to the three-point line. His greatest contribution came in keeping the floor spread. But when Nash sat, Johnson was next in line in terms of running pick and roll and getting the offense in action. And then when we got D'Antoni as a coach, he was uh, probably probably the best person for me, so to speak, because he just let me play. It wasn't, it really wasn't a structure. It was like, man, just go out there and play, have fun. I was playing, I was starting at the two guard, but backing up Steve Nash at the point. So I was, <laughs> I was doing virtually anything I wanted. But let's circle back for a second. Over the course of his career, Johnson has earned a reputation as a shot maker, albeit more for hitting game winners and fadeaways than anything else. But back in 2005, he put together a fantastic season of spot-up shooting. Yeah, I was like right behind Fred Hoiberg for like second in the league at three-point percentage. It was, it was crazy. No, no, no. Not second best behind Fred Hoiberg crazy. Try top five three-point percentage in a single season ever crazy. And at the time, only two players in NBA history had ever shot better than Johnson's 47.8% on a similar number of attempts. It was kind of an improbable development. Johnson had never come within 10 percentage points of that new high water mark in any previous year, largely because perimeter shooting had been as inconsistent as any other part of his game. Nash's delivery and D'Antoni's system gave him a boost, but Johnson also committed to working on the durability of his mechanics. Phil Weber, who was assistant coach at the time, after every practice, man, man, he would be in the gym, not only getting extra shots up, but we had the heavy ball. At the time, I'm not even sure if they had like a, a like the heavy basketball that they got like now. We was using a medicine ball, and I would shoot like with a 25-pound medicine ball. I had to make like 150 shots after every practice. Like my arm be wore out, so I had to do it after every practice. I dreaded it. I hate seeing him, and you know that's what it was. He made me do it after every practice, man, and, and it paid off. Uh, it paid off big time. Each player's struggles with inconsistency are his own. For some, it's a crisis of confidence, the existential trouble of being a professional basketball player who just can't see a ball through a hoop. For Johnson, stability came through comfort on both sides of his role and the physical honing of his most important skill. Now Johnson was a bothersome defender, a part-time creator, and an altogether more reliable range shooter. That's more than enough to get a player paid, and a big part of the reason why Johnson eventually became an Atlanta Hawk. The want to leave what was a pretty satisfying work environment in Phoenix started as an itch. I just knew that I was a better player than what people knew. And uh, I wanted to evolve my game, man, and be more, have more, uh, have a bigger role on a team. That's, that's pretty much what it was. The Suns couldn't reasonably accommodate that. Nash was transformative because he made the offense fly, but he needed the ball to do it. And then there was Stoudemire, who just beamed with possibility. Behind them, Sean Marion, who was one of the league's best all-around players, would occasionally grumble about his own billing. 
So there was little left to reallocate, and after a 62-win season, there was little reason to budge. So Johnson's eyes started wandering. But a lot of the interest around the league was tempered by the fact that Johnson was a restricted free agent, meaning that any offer sheet he signed could then be matched by the Suns. The Hawks, who were desperate to add talent, couldn't be deterred. They were just persistent the whole year. You know, uh, I had I had I had a few other teams involved, but Phoenix kind of scared them off because they was telling them, man, there's no need for you guys to try and sign them because we're gonna match. So a lot of teams ran. Atlanta stayed. They was like, we we don't care. We stand. We we gonna offer such and such, and and that's just kind of how it happened, man. And uh, they uh they 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 made the offer and. You know, probably one of the hardest things I had to sit on, I had to get on the phone with Robert Sorrow, who was in his first year owning the team, and tell him, man, look, just just let me go, don't match. You know, I, you know, I just want a bigger role for myself. I think this is a great fit for me. And uh, I don't, I don't think he wanted to do it, but he did it, man. He didn't, he didn't match. Sarver altered the course of Johnson's career. It was one of those things that was unknowable at the time in part because the full ranges of Johnson's game were still a bit unknowable. The Hawks didn't care. They saw an emerging player who had shown he could do a little bit of everything and wanted to put him in a position to do a whole lot of everything. Atlanta didn't want another nice piece, it wanted a star to put nice pieces around. Those opportunities only come so often for role players. It's another snag of identity. Players are asked to change constantly, but they carry certain conceptions around like a lead weight. Consider Johnson, 24 years old, and his best NBA season came as the fourth option on what some consider to be a gimmick offense. Had the Suns matched his offer, every passing year would have quelled interest for some other team to trade for Johnson and try him in something new. Do any one thing for long enough in the NBA, and your reputation crystallizes around you. Whatever Johnson eventually became, he became because the Hawks never let his game set. Check out Open Floor with Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver. I understand that it wound up being a lot of fun to watch, but as an outsider, I'm just like, why would you ever play LeBron that much in a meaningless game in March? Like that to me just doesn't track. Yeah, I think they've reached a point now where it's like they don't feel like these games are meaningless. Like I think that they've probably struggled for long yeah. enough where they're like, we need to get some wins. Listen and subscribe to new episodes every Tuesday and Friday of Open Floor. The idea from the start was to unlock Johnson's game through transposition. They brought me over there to play the point. And in that draft, they had uh, Chris Paul and Darren Williams, and uh, they took Marvin Williams second. And uh, they was like, man, we're just going to be six seven, six eight, six nine across the board. We're going to switch everything. This is how we're going to do it. So the first year I played point guard, I averaged 20 and like seven assists. And man, that was uh, that was an eye opener my first year because we started off like two and twenty six. I was like, man, I just come from winning sixty two games. God, Lee, like it was it was miserable, man. It was miserable. Uh, I can honestly tell you, I had second thoughts about my decision. The Hawks actually started off two and sixteen, but Johnson's larger point stands. 
Opportunity can be bittersweet. Getting a chance to run your own team for the first time almost necessitates that the team be awful. Playoff-ready clubs just aren't usually in the habit of handing over the keys to the unproven. And not only that, but Johnson had to climb the usage curve against years of instinct. Players get used to the rhythms of a game from particular angles. When to push, when to fall back, all this unconscious shorthand of team play. Taking on the kind of responsibility that Johnson did in Atlanta, especially after just being part of the tapestry in Phoenix, required some pretty considerable reprogramming. I had to work my way up into it because I remember we started off in the preseason with Atlanta and I was just kind of coasting, going through the motion. And uh, I remember uh, Coach Mike Wilson came to me. He's like, man, I, hey, I need to see more out of you. You know, I, you know, we basically we just spent all this money like we, we we need to see what you got. For 41 minutes a night, nearly everything ran through Johnson. It was him getting the youngest team in the league into its sets. It was his job to hunt for a shot when the play broke down. It came down to Johnson bringing up the ball and pounding it for full possessions at a time as he tried desperately to get things going. Those second thoughts came creeping back whenever Johnson's methodical offense couldn't keep up with the flood of scoring the Hawks would allow. But the next year, they'd win four more games, and then seven, and then 10. I, I just tried to make the best of it, and each and every year, man, we, we made a significant jump to where we was becoming a better team, better team. And all of a sudden, we get Al Horford with a playoff team every year. Second round, we just could never break through that barrier, man, to where, you know, we can make it to the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals, or, but we, we have some great pieces. In the process, Johnson was widening his creative range as much as he could. Atlanta plunged him into pick-and-roll after pick-and-roll and let Johnson figure out the rest. With continued usage, all sorts of interesting wrinkles began to develop in Johnson's game. Those low crossovers started getting even sharper and stretching further. Inside-out dribbles gave Johnson even more openings to slink through on his way to the basket. His length and his height became a more direct presence in his offensive game as he learned to use them to their fullest. All Johnson had to do was get by his defender, and then he could seal them off completely by basically boxing them out of the play while keeping his dribble. Right, right, right. You're not, yeah, you're not getting back in front of me. If I get in, if I get in front of my man on a pick and roll and you behind me, you dead. Yeah, it's over with. It was the start of a shift in the way that Johnson used his body, and the idea came from seeing it play out on, let's say, a much smaller scale. Man, just watching some of the great point guards in this league, uh, that was just pretty much our visual. You know, when I say watching some of the great point guards, you look at CP, a, a guy who I, you know, love to watch playing pick and roll because CP would always do that. And if he get you on his back or his hip, you it wasn't no getting around him. So I'm thinking, like, all right, 6'8", if I could do that, cool, I, I could be a problem. Those kinds of moves, in essence, gave way to a new persona. Atlanta weaned off its pick-and-roll game over the course of a few years and started leveraging Johnson's newfound tricks to separate a single opponent and attack them directly. Johnson had the moves to get a defender retreating and the strength to separate for a jumper. Iso Joe was born. The first time that Johnson heard that name was... During my Atlanta days, uh, and it was a stat. I can't even remember the reporter's name. He said, he came to me one day, he was like, man, do you know you... Uh, you you play the most one-on-one -on -one ball in the, in the league. Like, you 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 have more ISOs than anybody in the league, like than LeBron, D-Way. 
AI. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. So uh, from that point on, I just kind of remember I just I would hear here and there, ISO Joe, ISO Joe. And then, uh, you know, when I started making like big shots, game winner, that's when it just really kind of came in the fold. ISO Joe became infamous and undeniable. The style of grinding out all these tough two-point jumpers against a single defender, it was all a bit regressive, considering that the rest of the league was pushing for space and ball movement. Where it made sense was in its simplicity. Atlanta would be guaranteed a reasonably effective shot, despite its lack of reliable guard play. And when the alternatives are Mike Bibby and AC Law, ISO Joe starts to sound pretty good. So for years, Atlanta subsisted on Johnson's backdowns and step-throughs. He got bigger and stronger to the point that he became one of the more physically imposing guards in the league. Working out of the post became natural, and that in particular is something that never could have happened if Johnson had stayed in Phoenix. If you're not familiar, this is how Mike D'Antoni feels about post play. You know, we go by the numbers, and a great post player posting up, is one of the worst offensive plays you can have. So, sorry. <laughs> it's not that I'm not I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I'm trying to do something different. It's just not a good play. By the way, you can hear a whole lot more about D'Antoni and his offense in the second episode of this podcast, entitled System. And in a vacuum, D'Antoni is right. But for Johnson on those particular Hawks teams, it was among the most consistent scoring options available. That was especially true once Johnson really embraced the minimalism of the old man game. He had some tutoring. It's going to be funny, but when we got Jerry Stackhouse in Atlanta, uh, me and him, we used to play one-on-one all the time. And, uh, you know, at that at that time, Stack was kind of, he was older in his career. All, all he would do was get into my body, shoot his fade away, or he'd get into my body on a post-up, pump fake, up and under. He would always use his body. So I'm like, man, I got to learn this. So slowly but surely, I started working on it. He was showing me little tips here and there. And from that point on, man, I've that's how I've played since then. I've played Phil's God. When I post up, I wanted to contact, pump fake, and like whatever the case may be. Johnson did the best he could with that simplistic offense, but the whole notion of ISO Joe predictably went sour. The name itself took on an edge. It became as much a jab as it was a nod, a sort of shot at Joe for the limitations of that approach and the perennially stale Hawks teams he played for. Accessories were shuffled around a core of Johnson, Horford, and Josh Smith, but nothing worked well enough to get Atlanta beyond the second round. The design had run its course. I had done everything that I've tried to do everything that I could in Atlanta, and uh, obviously we came up short. So it was pro- it was time for me to move on. What he moved on to was a team in pursuit of balance. The Brooklyn Nets acquired Johnson via trade to help stabilize a lineup with Darren Williams and Brooke Lopez. Johnson's usage would continue its downward creep, but Brooklyn sought out Johnson because of all he could do as a scorer. He just had to scale down, kind of blending some of his approach in Phoenix with some of the skills he sharpened in Atlanta. I've been there. You know, I've been there. So it wasn't hard for me to, you know, come to the Nets and play off of D-Will and Brooke, uh, whether they wanted me to spot up, whether they wanted me in pick and roll, whether they wanted me to post up, whether they wanted me in isolation. 
I done whatever Coach Avery Johnson asked me to do, and I tried to do it the best of my abilities. D'Antoni once described Johnson as a zero-maintenance player. That seemed to be clearest in Brooklyn, where his role would yo-yo along with the team's needs on a particular night. The Nets later added Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett to take a swing at the title, though in the process, they muddled any sense of internal order the team might have had. There were times when Johnson's ISO work was instrumental, and there were other games where he was just better off shelving it to go back to his spot-up ways, punishing overhelp as a defense keyed in on Lopez or Williams or Pierce. The only way a player like Johnson could catch the right groove as often as he did was by having a keen feel for the game. That feel dictates where Johnson should be and how he should operate. It's knowing where to pass the ball before 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 the uh your teammate even knows it's coming. You know, seeing a play seeing seeing a play happen before it even really happens. That's a feel for me. Like I can go watch some high school kids play and and five minutes into the game I can tell who has a great feel for the game just by how they how they play in different speeds. For me, that's having a great feel for the game, how you sh- you go from fast to slow to medium. And as Johnson worked through his early 30s, those changes in speed were everything. Okay, fast was probably out at that point, but Johnson's small accelerations and decelerations, they got a defender rocking, which meant he could attack their off-balance foot or make contact to exploit their backward momentum. Thriving in isolation had made the feeling of slow playing a possession really comfortable for Johnson. His sense of timing made him unflappable. Uh, I just kind of play at my own pace, man. I don't, I don't let no nobody speed me up, so to speak. So I'm not never gonna be in a rush. I'm gonna always take my time and take whatever the defense gives me. Part of the reason why some players fall off so quickly is that it's hard to pinpoint the start of a decline in real time. At the point where it's noticeable, it can almost be too late. What looked like a rough few months or a slow recovery from injury can turn out to be the sobering new normal. The tools that a player relied on his entire career can abandon him suddenly, leaving him to his own devices against a league that looks quicker and springier every second. A below-the-rim game built on savvy and guile made Johnson the most anonymous star of his era. But the fact that he worked so consistently at lower speeds and at lower altitudes makes the gradual slide to the end all the more graceful. A player can't exactly transform without self-awareness. Johnson has it. I've never played with athleticism. My game, I was always a below-the-rim type guy. So my my game didn't really change that much uh, other than, yeah, I, I've lost a step or two. But for the most part, I'm still you know fairly decent in pick and rolls, catch and shoot pretty good posting up pretty good and, I'm, and just being a playmaker let alone that's probably the uh, biggest thing that I really pride myself on man making guys better so those are those are tools man that I work on continuously every day and uh, just try not to let them leave. Johnson put all of those skills to work for the Nets without ever really losing himself in the process. Players respect that and coaches too, considering that they selected Johnson for the last of his all-star appearances in 2014, when there were plenty of other qualified candidates. What they saw in Johnson was a player who fit, no matter what was around him in Brooklyn. 
or maybe they just saw all the game winners. Nets looking for the win. Johnson, the step back. He buries it. Joe Johnson. Oh, my goodness. He wins it in double overtime. That was real. And that was spectacular. Yes, it was. Into Williams. Five seconds left. Four seconds left. Johnson. A jumper for three. Yes! 1.3 to go. We are tied at 105. Bucks have no timeouts remaining. Game in his hands. Backs up at the horn. Good! Joe Johnson one more time. Figures. Johnson's performance in late game situations got so ridiculous in Brooklyn that when Jason Kidd left the Nets to coach the Bucks in 2014, he warned his team outright that a buzzer beating possession would be going straight to Joe. Jason Kidd just pointed to Joe Johnson. We know it's coming yeah. to you. So Kidd will play mind games if they're available to him. There's just something about being a big, elusive shooter that lends itself perfectly to clutch play. Just ask the Clippers, who took a game-winning buzzer beater from Johnson on their home floor just this week. Two defenders thought they were all over the shot, but Iso Joe just shrugged them off. Won't use the timeout. Five seconds left. Joe Johnson with four. Johnson with two. Drives in. Puts it up. Anytime a coach believes in me to put the ball in my hand down the stretch, I'm going to do whatever I can to try to get the best shot possible. And that's what i always done. But not only that, I think the coaches that I played for, whether it was Mike Woodson, Tony, uh, Avery Johnson, Jason Kidd, uh, Lionel Hollins, you know, those guys have put me in great position, man. We've had great, you know, inbounds plays or timeout plays and, it just kind of worked, man, for for whatever reason. But, you know, I've always tried to impose my will on the player who's guarding me. Because at the end of the game, when it's one-on-one -on -one and you're down one or it's a tie game, nobody's helping. Nobody's double-teaming at that point because nobody wants their man to score. So it's just me and my man one-on-one, -on -one, and I've always felt like I had the advantage. The countless ISOs in Atlanta gave him good reason to. It was a broad ability translated to these single moments. Johnson would never bear the full weight of an offense ever again, but everything that made him suitable for it in the first place helped to create that precious space for a game-winning jumper to soar. Back live, Joe Johnson got it. Six-time All-Star with seven-tenths of a second to go. He's been quiet much of the game, but just came up with the biggest shot perhaps of the season for Brooklyn. There wasn't a falling out in Brooklyn, just a fizzle. Pierce left in free agency. Garnett was sent back to Minnesota. Darren Williams was bought out. And the partial season that would end Johnson's Nets career was especially lifeless. He still showed up. There just wasn't much point for a team that would win 21 games. Eventually, the Nets just waved Johnson too. Call it an act of mercy. And once he was cut loose, Johnson surveyed the market to find one team that had a lot of what he was looking for. The Miami Heat. 
There were more promising contenders out there, but none positioned to give Johnson a particularly meaningful role. Miami had that going for it. The lineup would take some reimagining, but there was room for Johnson between Dwayne Wade, Goran Dragic, Hassan Whiteside, and Luol Deng. That was a group with the talent and flexibility to do interesting things. Johnson only spent 38 games there between the regular season and the playoffs, but that was enough for a sort of whirlwind romance. It was a perfect situation, a veteran team that gave Johnson room to operate, but not so much responsibility it would be uncomfortable. And like D'Antoni, he coach Eric Spolstra made it all work by shifting the positions of a few key players to roll small. We had a great team. You move Luau Dane to the four, I'm playing a 3D weight at the two, Goran Dragic at the one and white side at the five. I felt, man, we had a complete team on what I felt we had what we needed to compete with Cleveland in the East. Unfortunately, injuries are part of the game. They happen. As promising as the opportunity had seemed, Miami just wasn't equipped to handle compounding knee injuries to both Whiteside and Wade in the middle of a playoff run. Not only that, but game two of the Charlotte series in Miami, uh, I strained my right Achilles. But I, I never said nothing about it. I came in and got my treatment, but it was like I couldn't even push off to go left. So I couldn't even really go by my man. It was tough. We managed to get through the series thanks to D-Wade, but, you know, it was it was disheartening for me, man, because I know what I came there for, and I know I came there to help, you know, D-Wade in tough situations. So uh, for me, man, that was, that was tough. That Heat team dissolved pretty quickly, with Johnson, Wade, and Dang all going their separate ways in free agency. Johnson found a home in Utah, a place where, for the first time in years, Johnson wouldn't just be an addition. He could really help to build something new for a team that hadn't made the playoffs since 2012. His primary goal? Uh, Helping these young guys, man, along the way. A lot of them haven't even been in the playoffs, and if they have, they they didn't even play. I think I can be a part of it. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm coming off the bench. That's not a big deal to me. But when I come in the game, man, I'm just trying to make something happen. Uh, like I said, we got so many guys who can score the ball. And here in Utah, man, I think we have the complete team. Like, we got bigs who can play, defend, score, wings who can defend, score, point guards who can defend, score. Like, you, you, you pretty much have everything that you would want in a team. We got it right here in Utah. But we're so young, man, that... You know, it's times we look like we could be the best team in the West, but then it's times we look like we could be the worst. You know, it's just kind of how it is. So we have to develop some type of consistency and identity on who we want to be as a team. Injuries throughout the season prevented us from getting a clear vision of what the Jazz should be. But their 51 wins in spite of those injuries speaks to the caliber of players involved. Rudy Gobert has shattered what seemed to be the ceiling on his potential. Gordon Hayward, who is a legit two-way star, has a more sophisticated game every season. George Hill is a perfect, unassuming compliment, and Derek Favor is a bit of a wild card, considering how much time he's missed and how important the flexibility to play small could ultimately be. Johnson factors into that. After playing the point and splitting time at the wing spots for most of his career, Utah has found another latent transformation in Johnson as a floor-stretching power forward. Think about how crazy that is, considering where the NBA was in 2001 when Johnson's career began. It's went from playing with two traditional bigs now to your five man, maybe six nine, who can shoot the three. 
Like, that wasn't like that when I first came into the league. Not at all. Johnson wouldn't have had a prayer guarding Tim Duncan or Chris Webber, but the nature of the position has changed radically. The physical demands on power forwards today have more to do with how quickly they can cover ground than anything else. The league has switched really to a pick-and-roll type league, stretch fours who can shoot the three, fives who can shoot the three, and I've kind of, you know, kept up with the Joneses, so to speak. Keeping up requires a lot more work than it used to. Rest has become critical. You can see pretty sizable fluctuations in Johnson's performance these days based on his time off between games. He's playing at a lower weight to help his joints, and on the road, there is really no higher priority than finding a well-regarded yoga studio. It's measures like these that allow Johnson to still get to his spots after all of this reinvention. And it's measures like these that brought him to 20,000 career points this season, making Johnson just the 42nd player in the history of the league to get there. And really, you know Johnson still got it, because after a game against the Celtics this season, there were stories that rookie Jalen Brown had found a sudden interest in weight training, all because the 35-year-old Johnson had pushed him around and worked him over. It was a classic case of a veteran taking full advantage. I remember that game because if you got a rookie, if you got a rookie guarding a vet, a lot of times he's probably gonna try and take advantage of that. Because there are gonna be mistakes that a rookie is gonna make, man, that he's not accustomed, you know, accustomed to doing, like things like whether it's shooting a gap on a shooter when you should be trailing the whole time and he, he, he got caught a couple times like that that night where he shot the gap and gave me wide open threes. And, you know, it's just part of the game, man. You have to live and learn, but your experience is your best teacher. Fittingly, the Jazz want Johnson practicing in all trades. There's some ISO and some pick and roll in there, leaner variations of what he gave the Hawks. The same floor spacing that unlocked the heat has made the Jazz a better offensive team with Johnson on the floor. But you can't play in a Quinn Snyder offense without being a willing ball mover, the same kind that D'Antoni relied on to keep the Suns fluid. And it should surprise no one that Johnson essentially operates as a co-lead in crunch time, where he went nuts in the regular season and already sealed up one playoff game in Utah's favor. The Jazz need Joe Johnson in all his forms. I've always felt that I was a pretty versatile guy in that whatever situation I was put in, I felt like I can flourish in it. Uh, I started off in this league as a defender playing with Boston. I know I had to defend my butt off to stay on the court because scoring, they didn't need that from me. So it just kind of, then I turned into like a spot-up shooter playing with Nash. And then I go into a isolation guy playing in Atlanta, you know, back to a spot-up guy pretty much setting guys up. And now I'm, I'm just still this time in, this, this time in my uh, career, I'm just basically playing off guys. I make plays here and there, but for the most part, it's it's still fun to me. And I've, I've reinvented myself a few times. I've, I'm honestly, I still feel like to this day I still have to, I still have to come out and prove myself. You know, believe it or not, 16 years in this league, like I still have to prove d- different things. Uh, so. But I have no problem with it. I enjoy it, man. I'm I'm a fairly quiet guy. I'm always gonna be, you know, uh, I'm never gonna be the center of attention. Never want to be the center of attention. So I didn't I didn't 
it wasn't like I went to Atlanta wanting the spotlight because I never wanted that. I just wanted to help lead the guys in the right direction. So I'm, I'm always going to be, like, in the back chilling. You you won't even know I'm in the room. So that's, you know, if you watch me play, you can kind of sense it, and, you know, that's how I am. Thanks for listening. This is actually our season finale here at Breakaway, but we hope to be back soon. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. And subscribing, whether it's through iTunes or your favorite podcast app, is the easiest way to keep up with any new episodes from here on out. In the meantime, help us spread the word to anyone you think might enjoy this podcast. All six of our episodes so far are available in this feed and on si.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to breakawaypod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at Rob Mahoney. Breakaway is produced by Alex Abnos and Rob Mahoney, with special thanks to Ben Eagle and Matt Dollinger. Until next time. <laughs>